begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we come to you this evening again asking that you might fill us with your presence, that your spirit might be with us, that you might fill us with the truth of your word, that we might become more knowledgeable of the things that you have related to us, the precious truths of the scripture. We might become more godly. We might be drawn closer to you because of the knowledge we gain. We pray that you would strengthen us in our faith, that you would guide us to live lives pleasing to you, and that you would accomplish these things through your word and through your spirit, and we might have the blessings of your grace, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We turn tonight to Hebrews 7th chapter, and I wish I could give you the encouragement that we're going to start really flying through this material so I wouldn't have to listen to the jokes about how little we get through when we come to Bible study, but uh, there's no way we're going to get past the first eight verses, I know that, uh, because there's just so much to be said about Melchizedek and the interpretations that are available. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 7, and I think what I'll do, since I've already made this discouraging prophecy of my ability to get through much material, is I'll just read the first... Um, ten verses, actually, the first ten verses, and we'll see if we can get through that much tonight. As an introduction to chapter 7, verse 1, you need to remember the last verse of chapter 6, which verse actually harkens back to the last paragraph of what we call chapter 5. So I'm going to take you all the way back there before we read. In chapter 5, verse 10, we read of... Um, <clears throat> the one who is the author of eternal salvation, named of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And at that point, the author says, but I can't tell you about this because you've become dull of hearing. And he goes into a long excursus about spiritual dullness, the threat of apostasy, uh, the promise of God to Abraham, and how he will confirm his promises and make his covenant successful in the lives of his elect. And then at the end of chapter 6, he speaks of our following Jesus into the Holy of Holies. Jesus, as a forerunner, entered in for us, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So you see the connection? He's talking about Melchizedek at the end of chapter 5, takes a long excursus, then comes back to Jesus, who is our priest. We follow him into the Holy of Holies, but he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And now we begin chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham divided a tenth part of all, being first by interpretation king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abides a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth out of the chief spoils. And they indeed of the sons of Levi that received the priest's office have commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, through these, uh, though these have come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not counted from them hath taken tithes of Abraham and hath blessed him that hath the promises. But without any dispute, the less is blessed by the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there one of whom it is witnessed that he lives. And so to say, through Abraham, even Levi, who receives tithes, hath paid tithes, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And that's far as God's word. The author now gets around to discussing what he had wanted to so uh, badly uh, two chapters ago. He gets around to discussing the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he begins by describing Melchizedek as king of Salem, priest of God, most high, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. This 
designation in the first verse of chapter 7 is taken directly from Genesis, the 14th chapter. And I'd like us to keep our finger in Hebrews 7, but turn back to Genesis 14 so we can do a little study of the historical background of this, um, this chapter in Hebrews. Genesis 14. <coughs> And the event that is being referred to by the author of Hebrews is the um, battle of the four kings against five. In the first 12 verses of Genesis 14, we read that four kings rebelled against five kings who had subjugated them. Among those five kings was the king of Sodom, where Lot lived. The four kings were, for the time, successful in subjugating and taking prisoners and spoil from the five, including Sodom, and including from Sodom, Lot, and all of his wealth. Now we read in the 13th verse of Genesis 14 that one escaped and told Abram, the Hebrew, now he dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorites, so forth and so on. And when Abram heard that his brother, which technically is his uh, nephew, Lot, was taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318, and pursued as far as Dan. By the way, remember just from this, Abram was an extremely wealthy and extremely powerful man in the ancient world. Now, 318 may not seem like a lot numerically by modern standards, but I'm, we're talking about this is his household. That's all. He gathers those who are in his own house, 318, and he says, we'll go take care of Lot. And he does well. Um, he, he captures Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. So verse 17 says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Cheddar Larimer, and the kings that were with him at the vale of Shavez, the same is the king's vale. Okay, so you know the historical setting. Abraham has gone to rescue his nephew. He's been successful in doing so. He's gotten a lot of spoil from the battle. He's coming back, and the king of Sodom comes out to thank him, you know, because he's been rescued by Abraham. And it's at this point now that the text enigmatically introduces a new figure of whom we have no, no previous knowledge. And we're going to read, I think, for just three verses or two. And that's going to be all you hear of this figure until Psalm 110 has a passing reference to him, and that'll be it for all the Old Testament. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the person, so forth and so on. And that's it for Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews in chapter 7, as you turn back there, verse 1 says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham divided a tenth part of all. Okay, so he references then what he's going to say about Melchizedek to those two or three verses in Genesis, the 14th chapter. Now, what do we learn from the Genesis account? If you were to read that without the inspired help of the New Testament, whatever speculative conclusions you might be tempted to draw about Melchizedek aside, you can draw at least this one solid conclusion that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. Now, we would be able to say that, I'm saying, without the added help of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. You read the account, Abraham is the victor in this battle. And Abraham coming back and being greeted by the king of Sodom, who is essentially uh, recognizing Abraham's feet, 
is also met by the king of Salem, which king of Salem provides bread and wine, refreshment for Abraham, and blesses him as a priest, but Abraham pays to the king of Salem a tithe on the booty, a tithe on the spoils of war. Now, if Melchizedek blesses as a priest Abraham, then Abraham is less than Melchizedek. And if Melchizedek receives from Abraham the tithe, Abraham is less than Melchizedek. In fact, if you look at verses 4 to 7 in our reading from this evening, that is essentially the point being made. Now consider how great this man was unto whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth out of the chief spoils. And they indeed are the sons of Levi that received the priest's office have commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is of their brethren, though these have come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not counted from them hath taken tithes of Abraham and hath blessed him that hath the promises. But without dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Okay, so we know from the Genesis account that Melchizedek, enigmatic though he may be, introduced so quickly, disappearing from the scene without further comment, was greater than Abraham. Abraham, who was the victor in the battle, Abraham, to whom had been delivered the very promises of God, Melchizedek was greater than him. Okay, let's continue in Hebrews 7. We read that this Melchizedek was king of Salem. Where was Salem? Well, we know from Josephus and the Jewish Targums, as well as many of the Christian patristic writers, that Salem was identified with Jerusalem. And though there have been some people who wanted to dispute that, it's biblically provable that it is. Let's turn to Psalm 76.2. Stacy, I'll have you read that. And then, Pat, would you be prepared with Psalm 2, verse 7? And then, Jim, Isaiah 1, verses 1, 26, and 27. Uh, Cindy, Isaiah 2, verse 3. While I'm passing out text, I'll save time later by giving these out now. Joe, uh, would you put your finger in Psalm 72, verse 7, for later reference? And uh, David, Psalm 97, 2. And Julie, Psalm 98, verses 3 and 9. Uh, next to Julie down the line, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Harriet, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Ron, Jeremiah 33, verses 15 and 16. Kathy, Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Okay, let's go back to the point we were making. Where is um, Salem? And I'm making the point that it's Jerusalem, Psalm 76, 2. Okay, so Salem is Zion. But then that, that raises the question. What's Zion, right? Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have forgotten you. <laughs> That's a wonderful verse. Yeah, I like that verse too. What's the next one say? Psalm 2 8. Try 2 6. We'll get it. There it is. There we go. Okay, so Zion is the holy hill of God. That should be obvious enough, but if it isn't, we'll continue. It's Isaiah 1, verses 1, 26, and 27. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amon, which is far between Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of Tobiah, brought from Ahab and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Judah. And six, I will restore the judges as at the first, and the counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the face of the city. It's a prophecy about Jerusalem. The day is coming when Zion will be called the city of righteousness. Isaiah 2, verse 3. Many 
Out of Zion will go forth and out of Jerusalem, parallel in the Hebrew construction. And so we know that here, Salem is Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The etymology in Hebrew of Jerusalem means the foundation of Salem, or the city of Salem. In Salem in Hebrew, Shalom means peace. Right? And so what we have here is the city of peace. Now, in Hebrew 7, we read that Melchizedek was king of Jerusalem, then being called Salem. Melchizedek was king of Salem, priest of God most high. Is there something that um, immediately grabs your attention about this description that seems a little odd? Mm -hmm. That Melchizedek should be called two different things? What is he? What's his function in Jerusalem? Is that it? And priest. It's the and priest that's a little um, um, surprising. Here's the man who was the king of the city, but he's also the priest of the city. He's also priest of God Most High. The Hebrew is beautiful. El Elyon, the High One, God Above. Right. Exactly right. That's right. Two things that I want to discuss. I didn't pay my wife to say this. <laughs> the two things I want to discuss about this passage are the bringing together of the priesthood and the kingly office in one man, and of all things, in the person of a Gentile. And what do we make of that? And what significance should we draw from it? But first of all, that you understand the expression God most high as it's supposed to be understood. Back in Genesis 14, verse 18, we see that uh, Melchizedek is described with these very words. He is um, priest of God most high. But in verse 19, that is also the title of Abram's God. For he blesses him and says, Blessed be Abraham of God most high. He's saying to Abraham, We worship the same God. Blessed are you, Abram, of God most high. And then down in, um, in verse 22, when Abraham gets around to speaking to the king of Sodom, he says, I have lifted up my hand unto Jehovah, God most high. And so we know that God most high doesn't mean... Um, the strongest of all the pagan deities. Some have tried to take it that way. The Melchizedek was a polytheist, but he worshipped the strongest of the deities. He is the highest god. He worships the highest of all the gods. But here it's obvious from the text that Jehovah is described as God most high. That's just a way of saying the supreme sovereign, the one who possesses heaven and earth, who owns all things. And so we know that Melchizedek was worshiping Jehovah and that he was a king of a city and likewise the priest of that city. He worshiped the same God that Abraham did. And so let's talk about that, the significance of Melchizedek as a Gentile. Why do I call him a Gentile? Not because Abraham was circumcised at this point, he wasn't, but we do know that the Jews traced their biological lineage to Abraham. And so Melchizedek, being outside of Abraham, not one of his sons, and not part of his family, is going to be what we would call a Gentile. And so it's Abraham, the Jew, or Jew to be, if you want to not call him that till he's circumcised, it's Abraham, the father of the Jews, who is being blessed by and paying a tithe to a Gentile priest and king. This should tell us something about the ways of God among men. Our knowledge of God's saving deeds on earth is, of course, restricted to what he has told us in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. That doesn't mean that all that God was doing is restricted to the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Because even in those scriptures, we see a reference to someone like Melchizedek on the one hand and to Job on the other, who apparently was not a Jew, 
there's a lot of questions as to where we should date the book of Job. But I believe that Job comes from basically the same time, around Abraham's day. And so here we have reference to men who are godly men, who are worshiping Jehovah, and yet they are not part of the clan of Abraham, not part of the Abraham story, which leads, of course, through the Jews to Jesus Christ and the establishment of the Christian church. Now, it's of historical curiosity, maybe, but it has theological significance, too, because when we come to the New Testament church, there's a question whether Christianity is for the Jews only. Remember how the early Jews struggled with the, um, the early Jews who were converted to Christianity struggled with whether the gospel ought to go to the Gentiles as well. Peter had to be given a vision from God to be convinced that he was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. There was a question at the first general assembly of the Christian church as to whether the Gentiles are to come into the church on the same basis as the Jews and just exactly what their status was. There was uh, animosity between Jewish converts and Gentile converts. Paul struggles in the book of Romans to prove that the gospel has always been intended for the Gentiles. He goes to the Old Testament and cites passages to show that his apostleship to the Gentiles is something you would expect. It's biblical. It's not just some kind of innovation that somebody came up with. Well, of course, we can draw the same conclusion, can't we, if we look at how God was blessing and saving the Gentiles even in Abraham's day. At least this one Gentile who was so significant that he was a priest to God as well as the king of this city. And in fact, we could even say that uh, since Abraham, the father of the Jews, was inferior to this Gentile, this one who was outside the Jewish line, that it's all the more appropriate that Christianity should be a Gentile religion with Jewish background, that the Jews don't have any special place. And if we go back to the days of Abraham, we'll see that the Jews are a step below the Gentiles, at least in that instance. I mean, if you wanted to draw any conclusions, you would certainly not draw the conclusion of Jewish superiority. Okay, so all of this, I think, is fascinating. Uh, something to take into account. I want to look also, though, at the fact that Melchizedek was a king as well as a priest. Well, we see that when the Jewish nation was founded, God clearly separated what we'll call church from state. Does that surprise you? You know, a lot of people will tell you that if you read the Old Testament, there was no separation of church and state. That's what made it a theocracy. The state was run by the church. Nothing could be further from the truth. The, the religious cult of that day, cult, I, I mean, cultus, you know, not cult as we use it of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and things like that, but the religious cultus of that day was governed by a Levitical priesthood. And in order to engage in it, you had to be of one particular tribe, Levi, and of one family within the tribe of Levi, Aaron. Otherwise, you could not go into the temple. Now, there was a king in the Old Testament, you remember the story, who thought that he could take it upon himself to perform priestly duties. What was his name? Anybody? Well, Saul offered sacrifices and got in trouble with God. What we're thinking of? No, not Josiah. Uzziah. Very good. Uzziah. Got to get those Hebrew words distinguished. Uzziah decided he'd go into the temple and he'd offer sacrifices as, as the king. What happened to him when he left the temple? Struck with leprosy. Exactly. Went to his grave that way. God says kings and the priests are separate. Only the Levitical priests of the house of Aaron may go into the temple and, and do this work. Uzziah the king thought he could take it by himself. The Jews separated king and priest. When Christ comes into the world, however, he is prophet, priest, and king. He is all that the Old Testament religious institutions look forward to combined in his one person. Now the value of separating church from state, of course, is that in terms of a human ruler, we are protected 
to a greater degree, not absolutely, but we are protected against tyranny. The only one who has the right to combine those two kinds of authority, civil, earthly, legal rule over people, along with religious authority, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ looks back to the order of Melchizedek, who was king and priest. Okay, now in verse 2 of Hebrews 7. See how much progress we're making here? There's a lot of good stuff in this chapter. In verse 2, the author makes a great deal out of the titles that are given to Melchizedek. First is name, Melchizedek. Melech in Hebrew means king. Kathetic means righteousness. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. His position, however, is that of king of Salem. Salem, shalom, means peace. So he's not only king of righteousness by name, he's king of peace by position. So the author wants us to see that Melchizedek is a type, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. He is the priest king who delivers righteousness and peace to his people. Okay, let's look at some Old Testament passages that promise this, um, that this would be the ministry of the Messiah. Psalm 72, verse 7. In his days, the righteous shall flourish, and his eyes the one spoken of in Psalm 72 is a king to be set upon the throne, and in his day the righteous shall flourish. He will be a king of righteousness. Psalm 97, 2. Well, justice, yes. justice founds his throne. Psalm 98, verses 3 and 9. So in the days of the Messiah, the psalmist says, a king is coming who will bring abundance of peace and the righteous will flourish. Righteousness will be the foundation of his throne and he will rule the world and judge it finally in righteousness. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Again, we see the combination of righteousness and peace. He will be the prince of peace and of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end. And he shall rule in righteousness. You know, um, these have been rather distressing days for those of us who uh, would like to see a government that brings peace and justice to the earth. It's not easy when we look out at the world to see that being accomplished, even in the United States of America, which has so much privilege and a heritage that should make it be doing much better than it is now. So when you read these passages, it really gives you a longing for that kind of a king, a king of righteousness and a king of peace, one truly who will establish these things. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. He will raise up a branch, the Lord our righteousness, who will rule and give safety to his people. Righteousness and peace combined. Jeremiah 33, verses 15 and 16.
reading the previous uh, thoughts again. Then Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. God the Son, 
appearing. It's called a Christophany, obviously, a manifestation of Christ before his incarnation. And I believe that verse 3 of Hebrews 7 leads us to the conclusion that Melchizedek was a Christophany. He was, in fact, God the Son appearing on earth prior to his incarnation. Because Melchizedek, after all, doesn't have beginning of days or end of life, he abides a priest continually or forever, and he's not mortal. I hope that you feel the thrust of that. When you read the text, I don't see how you get around it. Nevertheless, it turns out that many have not wanted to draw that conclusion, and in particular, the author that I have the greatest esteem for as a commentator on this book of Hebrews, and the one that I draw on more than any other as I'm preparing my own lessons and was a seminary professor of mine, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, is adamant that this is not a divine personage, that he is merely a man. And I'd like us to look at the argument, and of course you draw your own conclusions. You already know where I'm going. I've let the flag wave. You know clearly that I'm not going to like this. But I want you to hear the arguments because what distresses me there's not that he differs with me on this point. I don't think any point of my theology, any significant point, would be altered if I agreed with his interpretation. But I'm just not sure the text is being dealt with properly here. Kathy, were you going to say something? No, I, um, I looked up about five commentaries on the earth, and they're, they're all in agreement with you. And they're all in agreement with me? With you. With you. Yeah, yeah, oh. um, like um, John Calvin. Um, you know how some people who are working through the institute and we come upon passages, you know, like about the Anabaptist, the particular men that he was really angry at, how he just really come out strongly, and not with investment, but, you know, he just almost had that feeling like he was yelling at somebody. And that's how he is on his topic. He calls it ridiculous that some of us thought of this as a Christophany, and, you know, just he's really strong. Um, Matthew Henry, comes down on the side of it not being a Christophany, but he does put that forth as a possible view. And um, the, the Tyndale commentator um, said definitely not. Um, it was a really surprising, but also the thing that surprised me is that it did not um, deal with the state. You know, their, their argument, um, means is 
without mention of father, without mention of mother, therefore without genealogy. And that the silence of the book of Genesis about a father and mother for Melchizedek is there to give the impression of a continuous and uninterrupted priesthood. That the silence gives the impression that Melchizedek just went on and on and on. And though that's not really true of Melchizedek, it is true of the one that he foreshadows, Jesus Christ. And I want to share with you, my friend, I'm really distressed at that line of reasoning. I'm really distressed at it, first of all, because it just departs from the text of Hebrews altogether. Hebrews does not say that Jesus, I mean, it, it does teach this, but this verse is not speaking of Jesus being without beginning of days. It is saying Melchizedek is without beginning of days, without end of life, and abiding a priest forever. Secondly, if it's really Jesus who is supposed to be without father, without mother, and without genealogy, it's just false. Jesus does have a genealogy. You can find it both in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. And so it's very difficult to believe that the author of Hebrews is mixing this so much that he's really thinking of Jesus in one hand and Melchizedek in another, and it's Jesus who is ultimately the one being spoken of here, not Melchizedek. Because Jesus does have father, mother, and a genealogy. Now, of course, you could rescue yourself from that by saying, well, his divine person doesn't have father, mother, genealogy. Only his human person does. But... Well, that's, that's drawing an awfully fine point for an argument that is already having us believe that what the text says about Melchizedek, it really doesn't mean about Melchizedek, it means of the one that he foreshadows. Secondly, I have difficulty with this line of argument. Uh, well, thirdly, I mean, it's not what the text says, and it's not true of Christ that he isn't of genealogy. Thirdly, do we really approve of this kind of reasoning and interpretation? But since the text doesn't mention a father and mother, we draw the conclusion he's an eternal person. We're supposed to believe that what the author of, of Hebrews is doing is saying, well, since Genesis doesn't mention a genealogy, then we get the impression and can draw the conclusion that we're talking about an eternal priesthood. Again, on Hughes, Philip Edgkin Hughes' interpretation, that's what the author of Hebrews is doing, and I'm stepping back saying, do we approve of that kind of reasoning? Argument from silence, that since there's no mention of father and mother, ergo, therefore, we have here an eternal personage. Now, it so happens that Elijah has no mother and father mentioned. Do we draw a conclusion that Elijah is an eternal personage, or that he's foreshadowing an eternal personage? Well, Elijah foreshadows someone. In some senses, he foreshadows Jesus. In other senses, he foreshadows John the Baptist. But does he foreshadow an eternal personage just because there's no mention of the genealogy or Daniel? The same situation. I mean, this is really special pleading reasoning. Only in this case do we draw such conclusions. And it's reasoning from silence to boot. The fact that Genesis doesn't mention a father and mother means that we're not supposed to take it. <clears throat> that he has one. Or at least, not mentioning it as a way of saying the one that he foreshadows will, will not have father and mother with respect to his divine nature. All of this is too much for me. I want to suggest to you that the author of Hebrews, under divine inspiration, knew that Melchizedek of old didn't have a mother and father mentioned because he didn't have a mother and father. He wasn't reasoning from silence. He was reasoning from divine inspiration. That is, the Holy Spirit revealed to him who Melchizedek was. And he wasn't following some line of specious argumentation to get to his conclusion. After all, in verse 8, it doesn't say that we're just to get the impression Melchizedek was not mortal. It says, in contrast to mortal priests, he lives. My conclusion is that you have the second person of the Trinity appearing in the person of Melchizedek, whose very name, 
tells you he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Now, how about the arguments that we have against this point of view? There are two of them, as I've already um, indicated. First of all, the argument says, according to verse 3, Melchizedek is likened to the Son of God, or another way of translating it, he resembles the Son of God. Now, how can he be likened to the Son of God? How can he resemble the Son of God if he, in fact, is just the same as the Son of God? And on the surface, you might think, well, it does seem to draw a distinction between the two. As a matter of fact, it does draw a distinction between the two. However, the distinction need not be that he's not the same person. Because the distinction, the difference between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ can be other than personage. Like, what would it be? Melchizedek, if he is a Christophany, is not the same as Jesus Christ incarnate. Christophanies were momentary manifestations, and I don't mean by that just fleeting. He may have, for all I know, Melchizedek may have lived many years on earth as a Christophany. He may have just appeared for this one thing. It doesn't make any difference. The point is, the way Melchizedek appeared on earth is not the way Jesus Christ came as the incarnate Son of God on earth. The way Melchizedek ministered as a priest back in those days is not the way Jesus Christ ministers as a priest today. And so, Christ in his pre-incarnate nature, as a Christophany appearing on earth, resembles the Son of God who now ministers for us, having come to earth in, in incarnate form and now is ascended to heaven. See, there is a resemblance. That doesn't mean that they're different personages. It just means there's a difference between the two circumstances and the manifestations of that one person at different times. Those of you who look at pictures of me as a small child will probably say there's a resemblance between little Greg and big Greg. Does that mean since I resemble this one who's in the picture that they're two different people? No. You see, and so Melchizedek can indeed resemble the Son of God and yet be the Son of God because he's the Son of God pre-incarnate resembling the Son of God post-incarnate, if I can put it that way. At least that's the way I take that. I'm, I'm not moved by the argument. Ron? Um, it would, my translation says made like unto... Another translation is resembles. Anybody else have? Would it be the same translation used in Revelation 1.13? When it says, I, I am in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one light and the son of man flows through the garment down to the foot and the foot. Why? You know, I, that's a very good verse to check, and I haven't done that in the Greek. I'm not sure. It might be. Anybody have? Did you bring a Greek text? Anybody? No. Anyway, um, the word in Greek, to get back to your question, Ron, is not going to settle this. It's going to allow for both interpretations. I do know that. We also have someone who appears in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who's like unto a son of God. Well, most people say that is Christ. They say that is a Christophany, and yet it says like unto a son of God. Yes? Sure, God did send angels, but I think he also sent the angel of the Lord who was Christ in his pre-incarnate nature. Both are true. It's not one or the other. In many cases in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is also called the Lord, yes. Jacob wrestled with the Lord when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord, the text tells us. It's a sense in which he's identical and yet distinct, which is, we, we see a, an early version of the doctrine of the Trinity, where we see God has more than one personage in his nature. Okay, the second argument against my interpretation is that uh, Christ would not then have a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. He would just have the priesthood that is his priesthood. And the, the feeling is that the argument here would not be a good one, because... The argument of the author of Hebrews is Christ's priesthood is superior to Aaron's priesthood or Levi's priesthood. Why is that? Well, because Christ's priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek 
And Melchizedek is superior to Aaron. Therefore, Christ is superior to Aaron. I want to maintain that the argument still is valid. The argument is still cogent and sound. Even though the order of Melchizedek is Christ's own priesthood. If Christ, if Melchizedek was Christ, then the order of Melchizedek is the order of Christ. Now let me ask you this. Is Christ of his own order? Yeah, we don't have any problem there. Exactly. It's kind of like, you know, the yardstick or the, the standard meter. Is the standard meter a meter? Sure it is. Is it of the order of meters? Of course. Even if it's the best and the highest, it is a meter. And Christ being after the order of Christ does make sense. Does the argument, however, become somewhat tautological or reasoning in a circle? No, because what we're saying is, even in the Old Testament, you should have expected that there was a superior priesthood to that of Aaron and Levi. And now in the New Testament, lo and behold, we find out that is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And you can learn it through the New Testament, being of the order of Melchizedek. You can learn it through the Old Testament, just through Melchizedek himself. And so while I would hesitate to draw my conclusion because of these two considerations, the two considerations after evaluation and analysis don't keep me from concluding that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate version of Jesus Christ. I've talked a long time. You probably are full of questions or challenges or whatever. What would you like to say? Is Salem just a uh, figurative place? One possibility would be that there was no establishment of Salem in this day, um, <laughs> and that Melchizedek is like the forerunner who, um, because this takes place in this general region, is considered the lord over Salem that finally develops there. I think that's a weak interpretation. That's not the one I take. I think that it was, or there was a city of Salem actually established and that I think, I think Christ for a period of time ruled over it and came out and blessed Abraham. And that's all we know about the whole situation. Because that raises all sorts of speculative possibilities, doesn't it? Pat? Um, Abraham was called to be before him. Right? So okay, called Habu, yeah, Hebrew. Well, he was, uh, do you think he knew? I mean, the fact that he gave him a tent? Do you think he knew? I mean, that would seem obvious that he knew. Well, I think he knew that this person um, was superior to him and deserved the tithe, that this priesthood had to be honored. Whether Abraham knew this is the Son of God who is to come, I'm not sure. But that he was a divine person. And it's interesting that he gave him bread and wine. I just kills over me to think about it. Yeah, well, I don't I know. I know that's probably special, but it says bread and wine. Jonathan Edwards insists that's oh. a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper, it's, it's, where, it's where Melchizedek gives bread and wine to Abraham. And uh, I'm not convinced, I must say, because it's not treated sacramentally. It's treated as simple refreshment in the passage. But it, ha it does have some learned men who were willing to draw that conclusion. The reformers were adamant against that interpretation, though, because the Roman Catholics took it as a foreshadowing of transubstantiation. And most of the reformers said, well, how ridiculous. It doesn't say that the bread and wine were sacrificed, which is what you have in the Mass, as you'll hear more about on Sunday. And so, but you see, having said the Roman Catholics haven't read the text correctly, that has proved that there isn't some foreshadowing of it. My, my main problem is that there's just nothing in the text that suggests sacramental significance. To the bread and wine. I don't think you're Okay. Other questions or challenges? Um, Scott? No, he apparently was not involved in this battle. He, he just kind of walks into the scene and then disappears from the scene. Well, <laughs> taken literally, yes. You want to explain that to the rest of the people, though, David? It's literally lost in the machine. It's a character who comes in out of nowhere to resolve the situation and then leaves him dramatically. But it's lost in the machine, particularly 
well, God shows up, clears up all the plot problems, and then takes off. Melchizedek is kind of like that. Um, Joe? It seems to me there are a couple of facts that we have authorities that are like that who recognize that authority, yet there's no authority structure there to identify. And we assume that we're living in a circle of state cultures around Abraham, the chosen of God out doing God's thing, and all of a sudden somebody comes along to Abraham recognizes as having that authority over him, and we don't know where he came from. Where is the structure that identifies who he is? Exactly. Oh, I agree. I think that's very helpful. And the thing is, yeah. is, is the fact that he does recognize him in that story, that he uh, creates kind of an interesting conjecture as far as well, how long has he been there? You know, <laughs> what is, and what kind of attention he was drawing to himself as far as the other kings are concerned? You know? One one of the rabbinic traditions says that, yes. In fact, while we're on the subject, let me real quickly cover the history of interpretation on the Pisidek. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but uh, just because he's so enigmatic, you know, it just it you know opens the door for people speculating like mad. Um, a great deal of speculation among the Jews and Christians takes place, especially after the days of the New Testament. As the Christian polemic, you see, is interacted with the Jews until they have to come up with new interpretations about Melchizedek. Uh, some have seen him as an angel. Um, some have seen him as a Shem, as you've heard. Uh, some Christians held that he was the Holy Spirit in the guise of a man. It's a rather strange interpretation when other Christians have held that he's the second person of the Trinity in the guise of a man. The Gnostics held he was a greater power than Christ in the chain of being, that God has this fullness that emanates out, and that you have all these levels of reality, and that Melchizedek was a higher uh, form of being than even Jesus. Um, so there's been a lot of strange things said. I do want to tell you that there's a particular background, however, to the author of Hebrews writing about Melchizedek, I think. So we have to ask, why is Melchizedek only mentioned here in the New Testament? That bothers some people. You know, if he's such an important person, why only here? Well, ask yourself this. Why is it only in 1 Corinthians we read a discussion of the Lord's Supper in the epistles? And the answer to that is, anybody who's a good interpreter of literature knows the historical context, you would suggest, that would suggest what? that there was a local problem in Corinth that called for discussion and correction. It's not that the Lord's Supper was not practiced in the other churches, it's just that there was no particular difficulty that those epistles had to address, but in Corinth there was. Likewise, Melchizedek may have been commonly understood in, in Christian uh, teaching and doctrine in that day, but to the readers of Hebrews, there was a particular reason why Melchizedek was worthy of special mention. And what would that be? turns out that in cave number 11 at Qumran, manuscript is unearthed that we, we find out that the Qumran, the Dead Sea community, believed that Melchizedek was the chief of the angels of God, that he would return to earth and rescue the righteous remnant, and that the great day of atonement and the year of jubilees would begin with his advent. Now, why is that significant? It may be so long ago that you don't remember this, but in our earlier studies on Hebrews, I said, it turns out that there is a lot of evidence that the author is fighting a polemic against Christians who are tempted to go back into a Dead Sea community form of Judaism. All that emphasis on Christ's superiority to the angels, superiority to Michael, because the Dead Sea community had such an emphasis upon angels, that Michael would be the one who would initiate the final day eschatologically. In fact, it appears that maybe Michael and Melchizedek were identified, maybe, in the Dead Sea community. And so I want to suggest that the author of Hebrews, knowing the temptation to go back into that form of Judaism, wants to set the record straight. Melchizedek is what I'm telling you he is, not all this silly speculation about him being an angel and so forth. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think what he's saying is, and here, in the case of the Levites, but there, in the case of Melchizedek. Real quickly, one other thing about this without genealogy. The Roman Catholic Church for years has argued that that's the New Testament proof that priests should be celibate, that they should not have genealogy. Yes, I see you rolling your eyes and groaning. You're absolutely right. It's preposterous biblical interpretation, but it, it's, it's common fare among Roman Catholics. To go, they're looking for some peg to hang, to, to hang this doctrine on. That looks good. Now, Pisidek's a priest. He didn't have a genealogy, therefore he wasn't married. Therefore he didn't have children. Sound like a good argument to you? Sounds preposterous to me. You see, what this really proves is that priests should not be having fathers and mothers as well as having children. Without genealogy, by the way, okay, let's not get out of hand here. Without genealogy does not mean without children, much less does it mean without wife. Okay? And the whole point of this passage, which I mean, this is the most offensive part of it, frankly. I mean, there's some silliness in this, but the offensive thing is the whole point of this passage is only one person has the order of Melchizedek, and that's Christ. And so even if it did prove celibacy, which it doesn't, as we've already seen, the point is it would only prove Christ's priesthood should be a celibate priesthood. For Roman Catholics to presume that they have the priesthood of Christ is blasphemous. And the only way out of that is to say, oh no, we're not claiming that, we're only claiming the kind of priesthood spoken of in 1 Peter 2, where all of us are priests. But then what have you proven? That all of us should be celibate. So that the Christian church shouldn't have a biological future. So that's just a very good example of biblical interpretation, I think, gone berserk in order to, to say some precious doctrine. In the case of Philip Edgman Hughes, who I, I highly regard, and I'm sorry to have to differ with, we see biblical interpretation that's not willing to take it at its face value, I believe. My conclusion is that Melchizedek was Christ, appearing ahead of time, before he was incarnate, and that Abraham received a blessing from Christ and paid tithes to him. The point of the passage, before we close here, just so we don't get all caught up in the speculation over Melchizedek. The point of the passage is that this one who is without genealogy, without father, without mother, does not have beginning of days or end of life, but, like unto the Son of God, abides a priest continually. Turn to Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110, verse 4. Jehovah hath sworn and will not turn back, will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Even Jehovah of old knew that Melchizedek's priesthood was going on and on and on. And he says of the one who will take the throne of David, you will have that priesthood. A priesthood that will never end. And in the book of Hebrews, this is emphasized. Hebrews 6.20 Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 7.16 Who hath been made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. Hebrews 7.21 For they indeed have been made priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him that saith of him, the Lord swears and will not repent, thou art a priest forever. And then verse 24 but he, because he abides forever, has his priesthood unchangeable. Over and over and over again. I don't want you to miss the theological point. The point is that Jesus is always a priest. He has the order of priesthood that will never pass away. Praise God, that's true. It means he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. It means at this very moment, Jesus is not just some personage in history who did something on the cross and rose from the dead for our salvation. But right now, Jesus is ministering and will continue to minister. Forever shall he minister to make intercession for me before God.
That's the value of his priesthood. Not like Aaron's that passes away and you have one lifetime in which to serve. But the priesthood that is an eternal one. Any, um, any questions before we stop? Joe. Not just that, but the priesthood. I mean, it's really talking about one thing. Yeah. I mean, he's there. Yeah, I, I think... I think there's a confusion, I think, that that's done by the order of Melchizedek. The priesthood, there are those who follow after. That's right. But that's the Quran. It's a thing He's the only one who could be of that order of one, an eternal priesthood. Okay, we did not have time tonight to talk about the significance of lawful war, Abraham goes to war and so forth, nor the significance of tithing. And so I'll try to discuss that briefly when we come back to this chapter in a couple of weeks. Let's close on a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the precious teaching of your word that you've given us that we could study tonight. We pray that we will have been faithful to it we have seen the pitfalls of false interpretation and ask, Lord, that for all of our good intentions, you would help us. We need your help and the power of your spirit to keep us from making similar mistakes. We do ask that you would keep us true to the scriptures, help us to understand them aright, to make positive, constructive, and holy application of them. And we want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts tonight that our Lord Jesus Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek and not a Levitical priest one who is a king of righteousness and a king of peace and who ever intercedes for us, who brings our prayers before you even now and makes them acceptable in your sight, who brings our very personage before you as holy and acceptable because of what he has done in our behalf. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for his death and resurrection in our behalf. We thank you for his continuing ministry. Without it, we would not be anything. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.